We're here in 2 Corinthians 10 and 11. We've got Paul interrelating with the uh, with the Corinthians, and it was a very difficult relationship. You know that uh, they slandered him, they they really despised him and hated him. These are the very people that he had brought to to Christ, and yet he's so positive in the way that he deals with them, and he's so loving towards them, and so identified with them, rather than as we might do, sort of shrugging his shoulders and turning away from them. And what motivated him all the way through that was his own personal experience of, of Jesus. We start off then in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1. I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And surely he has in there uh, an allusion to Matthew 11:29, where Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of heart. And there is the impression we can get that Jesus was all meek and lowly and quiet and humble in his life uh, in his mortal life and yet he's going to roar back not as the the lamb but as the lion of Judah etc in judgment and I suppose in one sense that might be the case but Hebrews says that the Lord Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever the essential personality of Jesus has not changed the Jesus who loved little children is essentially the same Jesus who is coming back to judge us and before whom we will come uh, finally in the day of judgment. It's that same Jesus and that is who he will eternally be. And so the Jesus who was meek and lowly of heart in his ministry, Paul says, is the same today. And it is by that meekness and gentleness of Christ that I, Paul says, I'm trying to relate to you. And you notice, notice, incidentally, that Paul is seeing himself as Jesus. And you know, in Galatians 3.1 he says that when I preached the gospel to you, you saw Jesus Christ placarded in front of your eyes, crucified. That in our preaching of the gospel, in, in all our interrelation with people, including here with brethren and sisters in the context of uh, Corinthians, we are to be as Jesus, because if we're in him by baptism and life in him, then, as it were, we, we are him. Well, his great theme throughout these chapters here, 10 and 11, is that <clears throat> he glories in humility. And that's uh, why he begins the whole section in, in verse 1, talking about the meekness and the humility, the gentleness of, of Christ. And as if that is still to be seen today in Jesus, and therefore it is still to be seen in us. And he talks in verse 5 about casting down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing things down, making them low. And this is very much the language of several places in Isaiah 10.33, 13.11, 25.11, 26, five talking about the proud and the great things being made low by the day of judgment. And he's saying that that, in essence, goes on right now. And so when in chapter 11 he comes to uh, sort of reel off the whole list of uh, things that he'd suffered, he's deconstructing there and uh, being sarcastic almost about what was called the enconium, encomium. Uh, which was a, uh, a first century thing that they did to sort of reel off all the great things that you've achieved in your life, the things that you've done. And it was quite common for people in Paul's position to write something like that about all their humanly impressive things. And he says in verse 30 of chapter 11, 
that he will boast only of those things that show my weakness. And it was common in the encomium to boast of all the, uh, the deeds of the body, as they were called, all the things that uh, you had done with your human strength. And instead here, he shows that he, the real strength is in weakness. And so he gives all these examples, really, of where he was great, as it were. He was uh, rightly to be accepted as one having authority, exactly because he had been so weak and had been brought so low. And that's, that explains why in chapter 11 there, in verse 30 and 31, having talked about all the, the weakness uh, of his life, he sort of implies, look, I'm just going to tell you uh, one, last, uh, one last piece of weakness. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. And then he says, look, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ knows that I lie not as if we're being set up for the final proof of his authority. And then in 32 and 33, what you get, you get just this reference about him uh, being let down by a basket over a wall. And in verses 30 and 31, he's kind of built up to this, as if we're expecting now some great uh, great thing to be said. And we might shrug and think, well, what was, what was the deal about being let down over a wall by a basket? Well, apparently... Um, a Roman soldier who was first up a wall and into a conquered city won a special award and it was called a wall crown but Paul boasts here of being the first as it were down the wall not up the wall but down the wall so he's reversing the classical sort of ancient warrior kind of image and again it's the things that humble us which are the significant things. Because that is the whole uh, purpose, in one sense, of the gospel, to bring down the high places and lift up the low places and make an even path for the Lord. And so, this is what uh, Paul is doing, really, and he goes on, we're going to see later on in, in chapter 12, when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, um, that all those things are to do with his sort of abnegation. And again, we start off by saying that he got the motivation from this from, from Jesus. And the whole idea of being brought down, that we might be lifted up, this is very much, of course, the language of Philippians 2, about what happened with Jesus on the cross. Uh, that he was, uh, well, Philippians 2 puts it in the form of poetry, that there were seven phases of his humiliation, and there were seven phases, as it were, of his uh, exaltation. And so that's what Paul is saying, that as Jesus was brought down, was humbled, so he also um, went through the, the very same. And <clears throat> in all this, he was trying to save his audience. He was trying to save the, uh, the Jews as well as the, uh, as well as the Gentiles. And so, he says that um, in chapter 11, verse 27, he lists all these things that he went through, and he talks about his hunger, his thirst, his nakedness, and his loss of all things. And in fact, uh, in verse 27, uh, he, he lists all those things, and He's actually alluding there, or pretty well quoting, Deuteronomy 28, verse 48. 
which is a list of all the uh, curses and judgments which are to come upon Israel for their sins. So he has really identified himself with his audience. He was particularly trying to save the Jews. And so he feels that his whole life, all his sufferings, were controlled by God so that he might be able to identify with them. And really that is what God did. That was the, the plan that God chose to save us and that he had a son who identified completely with us. Now, looking at that list of sufferings there in chapter 11, he talks in verse 24 about how he had uh, suffered uh, floggings. Of the Jews, I received uh, 40 stripes, save one, five times. Now, the synagogue floggings, which he's alluding to, were only administered to Jews who willingly submitted to the punishment because they were Orthodox Jews. And I think that um, there's a, a number of other examples, really, of where Paul suffers, as it were, more than he needed to. And it was because he chose to identify himself with his audience. And you see that, really, with the thing about his uh, Roman citizenship. A number of times he suffered when it seems that if he was a Roman citizen, he could have got out of it. But he didn't. And why was that? It was because he wanted, so earnestly wanted, to identify himself with his audience and not to use, as it were, uh, some other um, way to, to sort of make the cross a little bit sweeter, as it were. And that is uh, really the whole spirit of what Jesus did. I mean, there were various ways God could have saved humanity, but he chose that his son should be human and go through all that we went through. And uh, we're here, of course, to reflect specifically about the, the crucifixion of our Lord. And time and again, one, one wonders whether our salvation would have been possible if he had, for example, drunk the painkiller. Uh, and was the, the whole thing about crucifixion absolutely theologically necessary for our salvation? And, you know, if he had taken the painkiller, if he maybe had died in another way, less painful... Who is to say that our salvation would not have been possible, would have been invalidated? Well, I don't think so. But the point is that the Lord suffered absolutely as far as he could so that nobody could say that you don't know how I feel or nobody knows how I feel. He did, and he does, because he went through that process of identification with us right to the end. And Paul understood that, and he, he reflects that in his own life. Now, he said earlier in Corinthians, in chapter 9, that to the Jews he became as a Jew, and to the Gentiles as a Gentile. And so, there's, I suppose, a, a balance to be drawn. On one hand, just being what your audience want you to be. Uh, when you meet with people, perceiving what they really want you to say, and the attitudes they would like you to have, and adopting them. And we're all very slick and quick at doing that, if we want to. On the other hand, you can just say, look, I am who I am, and uh, if that upsets your sensibilities, that's tough. But the middle way, I think, is to think, what does this person need? You know, someone has to be mature in relationships, and that person is usually us. 
um, and to be sensitive to them and as far as you can to be a Jew to the Jew and a, a Gentile to the Gentiles even though that is very very painful to, to do that that's I think an explanation of why it appears that Paul cut one image to these Corinthians which in other places he didn't cut for example in chapter 10 verse 10 his letters they say that's Paul's detractors in Corinth are weighty and powerful but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible and uh, then in chapter 11 verse 6 though I be rude in speech Christ sent me to preach the gospel not with uh, wisdom of words he, as 1 Corinthians 1.17 he says that uh, not with wisdom of speech it's the same word um, now at other times Paul appears to be very very eloquent I mean when he's on trial for his life uh, at the end before Hephaestus and Agrippa and, uh, and all those guys I mean he, he's quite the auditor you, know, you almost persuade me to be a Christian Paul he's very quick very, very sharp um, and you think, well, why does he come over then to the Corinthians as a sort of an, an idiot and an ignoramus? And it seems that he was cutting a certain image, not posing, not being a hypocrite, but being to them as he felt they needed. Now, as I say, sensitivity in relationships is a bit like when you talk to a little child, you crouch down to their level to talk to them, so that you, know, you, you don't have to do that, you can just talk from standing up and there's this little tot toddling around on the floor, but it's far better to kneel down, or crouch down, and get on their level. Now, you know, one can do that in relationships without being arrogant, without being uh, up yourself, without being condescending, but genuinely wanting to relate with people. And... Um, that is, I think, what God, in a sense, has done in order to relate with us. As I say, he could have saved us any way he, he wished. But he chose, he chose to, as it were, come onto our level by having his only begotten son with the full nature of human beings. So then, he uh, is all the time, I think, holding himself back from what he just, you know, acting as he, he could have acted, um, and all the time motivated by Jesus being like that. I like chapter 11, verse 7, where he says that I abased myself so that you might be exalted. And I think he's alluding there to the Gospels, if you want to jot it down, Luke 14:11 and Luke 18:14 where Jesus taught that he who abases himself will himself be exalted. But Paul changes that subtly by saying he abased himself, not so that he might be exalted, but so that the Corinthians might be exalted. And I think you, you really have a, a real window there into, into his humility. Our humbling of ourselves, our, as I say, being a Jew to the Jews and a, a Gentile to the Gentile, is so that others might be exalted to the glory of God. Now, <clears throat> we live in a world where the fulfilment of personal aims is of paramount importance. It's 
got into the very fabric of, uh, of society. It's become embedded in almost every mind. And yet to live to serve, to put oneself down that others may rise, that is the whole spirit of, of, of the cross. It's what God did, in a sense, in Christ, and it's what the Lord Jesus did himself. It is the, the essence of, of the cross. Now, of course, Paul was under, under criticism, and despite uh, all that I've said about his humility and being all things to all men, that does not mean being a doormat, and he was not a doormat. He does uh, answer, I won't say answer all his critics, but he answers some of them. We don't know exactly all the things he was, crit- he was uh, accused of, but he certainly does answer some of them. And all the talk, as I say, about uh, being humble and having the meekness and gentleness of Christ does not mean that we are, in that sense, a doormat uh, and that we do not respond at all uh, to misunderstandings or others' criticism of, uh, of us. And you see that, I think, in his whole thing there in chapter 10 from verse 13 to verse 16, where the translation is a little bit difficult, but they were obviously accusing him, these uh, super-apostles, so-called, they were accusing him of not really having a mandate, not really... Uh, being authorized to to, uh, to preach and to do the work that he does. And he says, We will not boast of things without our measure, or our line, but according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. And we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, which is what I think they were accusing him of, as though we reached not unto you, for we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, but having hope that when your faith is increased, we shall be enlarged by you to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. Now, I think he's saying that he has been given a line of work by God, and that that line of work was to uh, to reach uh, Corinth, to preach the gospel there, You could argue that he's alluding to the Council of Jerusalem, which sort of allowed him to go to the Gentiles. I think it's more likely that he's simply saying, look, God has given me this uh, this work to do, and so I'm going to do it. And so, yes, I am uh, authorized to to come to you uh, with the gospel. And he talks, verse 12, about people who... uh, measure themselves against themselves and comparing themselves among themselves rather than against the the measure of what God has given us to to live up to and of course that's sort of uh, living in the club of mutual admiration and worrying about what others might think of us this is uh, a huge problem that people are self-regarding and worrying what other people might think of them rather than comparing their lives and ministry as it were against that which God has given them to do. Now, we may say, but okay, that was true for Paul, but how is it true for me? Well, the whole idea of being given a job to do, I think goes back to the parable of the talents, that we are each given something to do. And we are given in our lives good works to achieve, as Paul says to the Ephesians, which God has before ordained that we should do them. And we have to get on and do them. It's as simple as that. But the problem is that 
we don't know exactly what we've been given to do. What are what are our talents? What what have we been given? And if we don't know that, we should really pray to God to show us what our life's mission is to be. Because this is where people start to go wrong in their personalities and their way of life, because they lack a firm direction. They lack a sense of having been given what he calls here a measure, a sort of an allotment of work to do. Once you perceive that, you become less worried about criticism. You stop comparing yourselves among yourselves. And you're looking all the time at what God has given you to do and how am I matching up to it. Now, this is not, as I say, just something that was relevant for Paul. This is relevant for us all. And, as I say, ask God to show you what your work is. It may be work with a a specific individual. It may be spreading the gospel in a certain area, in a certain way. It may be all sorts of things. It can be working with your children, it can, or your grandkids. It can be all sorts of different things that God's given you to do. But believe me, God has given each of us something to do. Probably a number of things. Talents with which we are to trade to his glory. And on the Day of Judgment, there will be an investigation, or a going through, of the degree to which we, we lived up to that, and we did the work that was assigned to us. And as I say, it's so important to have this clearly defined. Because this is the way that we are not discouraged any longer by criticism. We can be like Paul and just get on with that work. But Paul had spiritual ambition because, as I understand verse 16, 15 and 16, he talks about that measure of work he's been given as being possibly enlarged. The scope expanded to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you to areas, it seems, where Christ had not been been taken. And at the end of Romans, it's a bit clearer, I think, what Paul's getting at, where he talks about how he had strived to preach the gospel, and he clearly had an ambition to get to Rome, and, as he mentions in in Acts, that he, he felt he was compelled in his spirit, he said, to also see Rome. And he wanted to go to Spain, and he had this plan in mind, and yet he seems to be saying that if you don't in Corinth sort of mature and get over this uh, mess up that you've got that I've got to spend all this time uh, visiting you, writing to you, trying to sort you out then maybe I will not be able to do that and once you've sorted yourselves out then I would feel I could go on to the regions beyond you so he was ambitious it's rather like when he talks about the gifts of the spirit in chapter 12 and he seems to be saying that if you've been given some gifts, well you can actually ask for others In that context, he encourages them to seek to prophesy uh, and to really seek that gift. And he's again alluding to the parable of the talents and uh, and the, the, the gifts that are given, the work that is given to each of us to get on with. And he seems to be saying that go and do it, even more so. Now, we should also recognize in our dealing with each other that we also, that others also have been given their work to do. And, you know, let them do it. If she feels that she has been called to, uh, I don't know, run an outreach to street kids in the neighbourhood, don't find a million and one reasons to, to pull her down. Support her as far as you can. And certainly don't, don't criticise her. That's her line of work. 
let her get on with it, or whatever it might be. So then, Paul, all the way through, did not give up with the Corinthians. I'm sure that I would have just given up with them and walked away and said, look guys, get on with it. Uh, that's what you think of me. But he, he didn't. He really feels that he's got a job to do with them. And I think the whole thing with the, the Corinthian ladders is never, ever give up with those for whom Christ died. That do not just walk away. And really, to disfellowship people, just chuck people out because doctrinally or morally they've failed to get up to the standard that you think they should have, that's really the lazy, lazy person's way out of the problem that to work with them is far more demanding. And I'd like to uh, conclude in chapter 10, verse 7. These, I feel, are very profound words for all of us. If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. Now he's asking them to bear that in mind, because they seem to think that he who had preached the gospel to them was now no longer in Christ and he's saying look if anyone thinks that he's Christ's then deep inside himself he's got to recognize that he's not the only one here that we that's Paul and his helpers that we also are Christ's and the implication I think of how he writes is if you don't accept that then there's a big question about whether you are Christ's and he's sort of said this in the first of Corinthians where he, uh, when he talks about the body and he's really saying if you uh, cut off parts of the body and you try and exist outside of the body by not having anything to, anything to do with them the body is Christ. Christ is the body. His body. And if you're just going to go off away from them then you are actually going away from Christ. And that those parts of the body that we think are feeble are in fact the more necessary. And I'm sure Paul was exhorting himself when he said that because the Corinthians, he must have been tempted really to just cut them off. He had that uh, panache and that kind of personality type, I think, to just flash out at them, look, that's it guys, I'm through with you. And he just cut them off to say, look, that's it, end. Uh, but he doesn't. And I think he's exhorting himself when he says those parts of the body that are weaker are actually necessary in the bigger picture. And so he's putting it the same way here, although he, he's putting it to them, as it were, that if you think that you're Christ's, then think again, that as you are Christ's, even so are we Christ's. So then, we have got to see that we are not alone, and that it's not simply a case of thinking um, I have a relationship with, with the Father and Son and that's, uh, that's all that matters no, it isn't like that because you can't just have a relationship with the Father and Son without having a relationship with those that are in him you know, John puts it another way First John 4.20 if a man say and I think he's probably uh, quoting what some people were saying if a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? There's no good thinking to ourselves that I am Christ's, to use the term he uses here in uh, chapter 10, verse 7, uh, 2 Corinthians. Um, it's not just a personal thing. 
salvation was made possible for a whole community. That is, the body of Christ. It was the one Jesus who rose, who died and rose again, and has been glorified. And our salvation is in him. And that means it's by being part of that body. And whatever your reason is for not wanting to be in the entire body of Christ, it's serious, because our salvation is from being in that body. And so then we are here to remember that body, and yes, we do remember the personal body of Jesus that was crucified and, uh, and hit and spat upon, and which rose again. And yet, that bread also symbolizes, in an absolutely seamless way, the entire body of believers. And by taking this bread, we are symbolizing our membership, our part, within them. And it is, in that sense, on that basis, that we are in the personal body of Christ, and shall share in that resurrection. <laughs>